who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. Each Monday, I bring you a brand new full-length episode covering something from a wide variety of topics. And then every Friday, come meet up with me again for a mini What's in the News episode so you can stay up to date on everything that's going on in the world. Check out Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And Ray John. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Claire, and are you ready? I will be in just a second. Yes. Are your notifications off? No, but I will uh, turn them off. Actually, I almost don't even care. Also, make sure that all my Facebook tabs are closed. Thank you, because Facebook is so loud. Yeah. That should be. Look at the party happening while you're gone. Don't do that work. Come pay with us. I know, I know. <laughs> I definitely can fall into that. Ugh. Well, no, that's what they're, I'm not saying that's what you're doing. That's what they're saying. Um, although oh. that's also what you're doing. Okay, so script is up. I'm ready okay, to hold go. On, hold on. <sighs> okay. Welcome to the, li- oh, Rosebud. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tananarive do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, everybody, welcome. Yes, exactly. Here we are, the two of us. No guests except just us this week, which is which is ah oh, fine by me. It's Friday, and it feels like it. I know. <laughs> it I really feels like I'm it. telling you, I, I 
I will get a little bit of work done today, but I've been hanging fire all day trying to, you know, yesterday was a very stressful day. And today we, um, we had a major milestone in terms of our fam, moving our family forward. And it was trying to uh, not feel too much anxiety about it. We won't necessarily go too deeply into that. No, because everything is wonderful. A grown person who lives in our house with us, who uh, probably doesn't appreciate us talking about his business, but we're very proud of said person. And, you know, whoever it might be, whoever it might be. um, And since you bring it up, honey, you know, why don't we just talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on? see us waving our arms in the studio we're really into it today because woo, we feel it we feel it in our spirit today yeah as soon as we get finished with this we get to play golf with uh, our daughter virtual mini golf virtual so you mini don't golf. think we're too fancy yeah and we're then, not headed uh, out to the country club or anything i'm off for the weekend after that boy Ooh. boy oh, do, I need, do i need that um, yeah, so you, I've needed you know nine hours of sleep on average. So you've been working constantly uh, for months. weeks and weeks and months and months and months, and and I think you know we talk every week about balance and yeah. how important it is for people to have rituals and practices that get them through. And you were on a deadline, so it's it's a little tougher. But and it was hard through the through the holidays. Ordinarily, you know, I take at least a week off, you know, right around Christmas time and just do nothing except enjoy myself. You took like a day and a half off. I was not able to do that. Yeah, I took a day and a half off. You know, God, I was working on Christmas Day. I just was, you know, saying, oh, I'm I'm enjoying this. So I really didn't take any time off. I can feel that. So uh, I'm forcing myself to stay in bed until my body feels completely rested. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the book was turned in almost two weeks ago. I pushed the button to turn it in. And by Monday, my editor says she will have finished reading it. And then we will do a meeting and I can stop. Hopefully I can eat. I will either hear, you know, this is unsuitable return. All monies. We're going to sue you. <laughs> no way. You know, it'll, no it'll way. be, it'll be, you know, That's not oh, gonna this happen. Is great. I'll make, make these changes and, you know, we'll, we'll bring it home. I, I don't, I don't mind the anxiety. You know, it keeps me honest. It makes me know that every single time I do this, that I have an obligation to do the very best work I'm capable of doing. I must never go to sleep on the fact that I'm blessed to have spent so much of my life doing the thing that I love doing. And I try to take it seriously every single time. Absolutely. Well, I am not on deadline. I mean, I am sort of on deadline. We have a short comic we've been uh, collaborating on here and there. And I I finally got a a rough draft down based on our last meeting and I'm formatting it. That's the hard, I'm, I'm, I love screenwriting because I can sort of flow within the format of screenwriting. I'm still learning how to flow within the format of comic writing because the, the script formatting I'm using is, is not as familiar. I learned. You can write it. You can write your first draft in screen, in, in screenplay format and then just change the format. Well, what I did was I wrote it on a Google Doc and just blah, vomited it out. And now I'm going to go and make it all purdy. But I've learned so much. Um, I'm I'm very uh, excited to be returning to and learning more about 
um, comics. My editor uh, for the previous comic I wrote, uh, Porn Sack Pichetchot. Oh my gosh, he is such a great editor. And I learned so much during that process that I can literally hear his voice in my head as I'm working on this, this new one, which is for the Shook Anthology, which was something that was kickstarted. And it's uh, comics featuring uh, Black women and Steve. <laughs> But we're writing a black woman protagonist, um, and it's you know it's a new world. It's a new world with com. I say, I say do all the things right. This is something that is one of the life writing principles: having creative flexibility. I do short stories. I do novels. I'm learning comics. Next, one day a play. I, I would yeah, love to absolutely. Write. I I wrote a, a, a one a, a one woman show, one woman play, many years ago called "I'm Gonna Fly," and uh, it was quite an experience because. The quality of dialogue in a play has to be higher than in any other form I know of. Yes. Uh, because in many ways, all you have is the dialogue. You know, with movies, the dialogue is important, but it's not as important. Nope. Um, so I think you're going to have a great deal of fun with that. I, yeah, and I'm looking forward. And also, I think I mentioned uh, – no, I haven't mentioned, but I – and I won't mention it. I'm, I'm not – there's something in process that I have mentioned to people who, if you have my newsletter, if you follow my newsletter, it did not, not dub, bleh, Rosebud. If you have subscribed to my newsletter at www.tananarevelist.com, you already know my news, but it's not public yet. And I kind of sort of almost do believe in jinxes. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk about it publicly, but uh -huh. I will have, I will have some book news uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully uh -huh. I'm very excited it, to talk it, about it's that news, that news. Yes. Yes. I think I'm sure that everything will be well, but we will leave. We don't want to jinx anything or have you dealing with any anxiety? This is a time for celebration. You know, It sure is a time for celebration. Hard and work, but also celebration. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. And timely that you bring up the fact that you are awaiting notes on your Star Wars novel, because as a matter of fact, that is going to be the topic of today's podcast is notes. <laughs> what so, <the> heck? <laughs> so question for you. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about your process for dealing with notes. Then, you know, I'll talk about mine and then we can talk about ours. Yeah, I'm going to just set it up, as people like to say, set the table. Whether you are a, a new unpublished writer, you're in an MFA program, you are dealing with an editor, or you're dealing with Hollywood executives, getting notes is a critical part of the growth process for a writer. I have to shout out former podcast guest Robert Vermosi again, uh, who is also a writer. And we were in college together. He marked up my short story with Red Ink that turned into my first fiction sale. And, and without those notes, it probably would not have turned into my first fiction sale. What was so, your first fiction sale? Uh, it, okay. It was a story called Amusement. Okay. But it has an asterisk because although it was my first sale, it was not my first publication. <laughs> the magazine went out of business. So have you published it? I did eventually, yes, publish it in an, uh, a horror anthology that Del Howison did some years ago. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. But yeah, I finally did publish it. And it was one of those stories, again, if you listen to this podcast, you might have heard me say that when I first started writing, I was not writing genre 
And I was not writing Black women characters or even Black characters. So this was one of those stories that was a generic white male protagonist, a screenwriter living in, I believe, the UK, because I went to grad school at the University of Leeds. And honestly, I was imitating Ian McEwen, who at that time was mostly known as a short story stylist. So I was trying to channel Ian McEwen and ended up channeling sort of a proto Tananari do if there was no genre and if there was no blackness in the story, but there was plenty of weirdness. Really what I was going for was a weirdness vibe, right? And I accomplished that. And it was because of Rob's notes that I did that. But, you know, different writers have had different experiences with notes. Very few writers look forward to getting notes or think, oh my gosh, this is going to be so great. I can't wait to see what they have to say. I'm sure it's all going to be so smart and so thoughtful. Uh, with one exception, which brings up a recent best of life writing we did on uh, Hollywood Horror Stories, where I talked about how we recently lost an executive. It was really, you know, one of the few times, not the only time, when I really did look forward to his notes, because his notes were so smart and so character oriented and so fine tuning in terms of detail. And for those of you who 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 don't know, um, Hollywood notes are kind of like the antagonist in every screenwriter's story, like the executives in their notes. I, it's very rare when you hear uh, screenwriters raving about the studio notes, the network notes. It's it, because these are business people. Well, I don't know. They're uh, sort of a combination of, of like editors and publishing. They're a combination of business people and creative thinkers, but especially in Hollywood, they don't tend to be writers. So they're very good at sort of telling you what they don't like, what they're not responding to. Like, I really relate to the protagonist, you know, a note like that, that is super, super broad without like a list of steps to fix it. Or if they do give you a list of steps, sometimes they are not good steps. So you hear a lot of screenwriters talk about how you need to hear the note beneath the note. And I, I think that's, you know, something that develops with time. You have to sort of have confidence in your own voice and your own talent to stand up for stuff when it's time to stand up. But especially when it comes to Hollywood and also sometimes in publishing, these editors and executives have very specific audience considerations in mind, uh, length considerations in mind that really have nothing to do with the quality of your work, but are part of the business hat they're wearing. And then when they're wearing the creative hat, as I've said, sometimes they don't have the language to help you get where they want you to go and ultimately where you want to go. And I'll give you an example. I'm not going to name this director, but one of my favorite writer directors, uh, I heard a story about him. This is a secondhand story, but it's from someone who knows him personally. <laughs> so um, this person <laughs> uh, was told about one of his scripts. Mm, I think you should make it less violent or something really broad like that. Like that's a super broad, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with this note kind of note. And what I've been told about this director is that his approach was like, uh-huh, okay, well, I'm not going to make this less violent. That's not going to happen because he's at that point where he can do that. But he, he has a firm belief that every note is valuable, no matter how silly the note may sound, how broad, how general the note may sound. There's something in that note that can teach him something. 
So his approach is instead of making it less violent, he will find a way to make the violence pay off emotionally in such a way that it doesn't feel as violent, like a violent distraction. It becomes a more organic part of the story. So instead of the violence kind of coming at the reader or at the viewer, it's coming maybe from within the reader, from within the viewer. We're feeling the violence in a different way. I don't I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but that's like I've thought that's a very smart thing. And that's hard to learn. And you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself. And sometimes you have to be at a certain level before you can afford to just say, oh no, I'm not doing that. You know, I've pushed back against notes, but I, I generally try to do anything. I try to give them anything I can do, uh, because the most important thing to realize is that you're in a you're in a dialogue with the development executives. Um, they're trying to get a particular product on the screen. It feels a particular way to them. They're looking for things that feel the way they want it to to feel on the screen, but they also if they're thinking to themselves, what kind of story would I write if I were a professional writer as opposed to a development executive? I think that part of what they enjoy is a writer who they feel this person is like me, you know, mm-hmm. and that means that they don't expect you to just roll over for them because they don't think they just roll over for it. So if you give them the sense that you're respecting them, you address a lot of their notes, and then you've got reasons for the things you didn't change, uh, they're likely to get the feeling, oh, they're not automatically rejecting what I'm saying. They're thinking about it. Now, there was a very specific note that I got on my Outer Limits episode, a Stitch in Time. Ooh, tell us. Yeah, uh, they wanted me to have, you know, basically it deals with a time-traveling scientist who had been uh, a victim of, of sexual assault. And what she's doing is she's killing serial killers. Um, she's waiting until serial killers have been convicted and executed. Then she goes back in the past and kills them before they've had the chance to kill their first victim, thereby creating, of course, her own pattern of serial killings. And what she's doing is is she's building up her courage to go back and confront the person who originally assaulted her. The executives wanted me to have her go back in the past, see the person who attacked her and realize that if she killed him, that all the one that her she changed her own past and her own actions, so that she would never have saved all those all those other people who were killed by the serial killer. And I think that they thought that was very clever. That she should be the sacrificial victim. That's basically. right. Yeah. But I I looked at that and I looked at them and I said the following thing. I said this is a bunch of guys sitting in this room saying that there's not a woman in here. So you guys go home and ask your wives what they think about changing that. And if they say that you should change it, I'll be happy to. But otherwise I think that it's not, it makes, it may have a symmetry that we like in terms of a story, but it doesn't ring true psychologically. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't feel, I don't believe it. And they went home and they asked their wives and they came back and kind of sheepishly said, you were right, Steve. And so I pushed back, but I, I chose the moment, you know, it, it, I had to feel that if I did it their way, I'd be destroying the integrity of the work. 
Uh, if they had insisted on me doing it, I would have done it because the, the total, the total flow of my work is more important than any individual story. And I wouldn't want to make a, a career mistake like that. I've known people much better writers than me who damaged their careers by fighting back reflexively rather than, than being as flexible as they possibly could. You know, I'm not going to be a, you know, my way or the highway kind of person. But anyway, that's, that's an example of, of how I chose a moment to push back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because coming from the prose world, of course, we're accustomed to feedback. That's how we got through a lot of us or a lot of students get through their MFA programs. That's what a whole workshop is. It's a whole room full of people giving you feedback, your editor giving you feedback. So we think, yeah, we're ready for feedback. But one of the bad raps that prose writers have gotten in the past when they try to transition to screenwriting is that we don't have enough flexibility, that we're too precious with the so-called final product, <laughs> in which there is no such thing in film and television. There's no such thing as a final product. It could be changed like on the set at the last second. <laughs> So that inflexibility has gotten some of us in trouble. And I think that despite our histories with feedback, the kind of feedback we get in film and television can feel so random compared, like the joke is how many, what is it? How many, how producers? many producers does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is, does it have to be a light bulb? Exactly. So depending on what, that daily meeting was in terms of the kinds of things they're looking for, depending on some kind of feedback metrics they're getting, they're making suggestions that don't always have to do with, is this a better story, but is it a different story? And the ability to pivot and find a way to create a different story that is also good is such a valuable skill, but that has to be balanced against, as Steve said, the part of you that's like, mm, no, <laughs> that is not a good story. That difference actually cuts out the heart of what we're doing here. And, and sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes they're going to cut the heart out of what you're doing and you still have to find a way to dress it up and, and put something in there that feels like it's beating. Do you know how much you have in common with some of your favorite celebrities, leaders, newsmakers? I'm Evelyn, the host of Reppin, where you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll find out who they really are and what they represent. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. I guess my feeling is that I'm not doing a different story. I'm doing a different version of the same story. You know, that if you had a historical event, you could do a dozen different movies about the same historical event. And they're going to be different. And the events, the perspectives will be different. It isn't just the position, but the telling of the sequence of things will likely change. One of the reasons that happens is that it's very, very difficult to determine what actually happened in a given situation. Different people are going to have different perspectives on it. And once you add the, necess the necessity of dramatically contracting and expanding different things and, and having the, to create the emotional roller coaster, um, once they're on it, you realize there are infinite ways to tell about somebody eating a cheese sandwich. Uh, so it's, I try, I try to connect myself to what is the most important thing here. And if they change the thing that was most important to me, then what I have to do is find something else that I can find important. 
about this, something else I can find valid about this. I've had my heart cut out a couple times, you know, when I was trying to, to write, um, you know, once for the Twilight Zone and once for the Outer Limits, I was trying to create stories that would be good stories for black actors. And they deliberately um, changed the race of the characters that I was dealing with. There was nothing I could do about it. I just want to add here, we're talking about previous incarnations of the Twilight Zone, not the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone. That's right. Because they were very, very true to the ethnicities of the characters we wrote. Yeah, that, that's 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 true. That's one one hundred percent true. Um, but in one case, you know, they made the the gang that I had. Uh, they would, and both of them involved street gangs, as a matter of fact, or at least one involved uh, uh, gang members at a inner city remedial uh, English school in, English class, and the other had to do with a street gang hijacking a military transport, and. They lied and talked about how they could not find black actors in Canada or something, some nonsense like that. And they, it was, you know, black street gang members and a black scientist. And they cast the lightest skinned black, you know, black ish actress they could find to play the scientist. And that was the only representation in the, in, in the entire piece. So mm-hmm. they made it, as far as I'm concerned, totally white. Although one of the characters had a, a touch of the tar brush, um, it 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 was it was heartbreaking because it was it was a way that I could see what I was up against, mm. um, and I could see that I could damage my career if I pushed too hard. But at the same time, they undoubtedly thought they were being extremely liberal and open, and isn't this wonderful? And you know, they did not see what they were doing. Mm. Uh, and so I had to eat that without getting upset with that either, because how can you produce your best work for people who you dislike? So in that sense, I had to be prepared to find a way to respect what they were doing so that I could be a part of it without any part of me pulling back and saying, I'm not going to give you my best. Uh, it's it's difficult because, you know, how do you be true to yourself and simultaneously eat that kind of shit? I mean, seriously. It is tough. And what's especially intimidating, I mean, this is true with prose too. If you're a new writer and you just have a new editor, you're eager to please. They're giving you feedback. Maybe you think deep down, I don't know if this is really making it better. This is a lot of work. This isn't, this is shifting away from my vision. Sometimes you just want to play ball because you want so badly to make everybody happy. And that's very true in television and film. I mean, my goodness, when you get your first opportunities to to work with the executives in television and film, you don't even have the confidence that you're a good screenwriter, much less that you're a good enough screenwriter to push back against someone with years and years of experience, you know, on the other end of that that call. So, but unfortunately, my least effective experience with notes have always been when I didn't push push back enough. When I tried too hard, I think we might have talked about this a little bit in our Hollywood Horror Stories episode. When my book, My Soul to Keep, was at Samuel Goldwyn Productions. (laughs) Ah, the Samuel Goldwyn story. Yeah, and you know, we had a disastrous... I love that I have this, yes. Anyway, um, uh, they were desperate. They came to the author. (laughs) They said, we need a take. The script isn't working. And we didn't have a good take. And, and the call went disaster. It went very badly. 
But what we picked up on was that they wanted sort of a leader of my immortals, who's a character named Khaldun, to be a more active character, almost like a sort of a super super villainy kind of character. And even though that did not sit well with either of us, it was almost the opposite persona of Khaldun. <laughs> it we tried. We tried. We tried to make him dynamic and swooping in, and it just felt so fake. And it never went anywhere. So when we faxed it, yes, this is an old story. So there were fax machines involved. So when we faxed the uh, the new treatment, like two or three pages, and the guy responded, oh, I love that I have this. And we thought we had nailed it when he said, I love. And then when he said that I have this, I realized, oh, in Hollywood, people say things that mean nothing. Um, then uh, it oh, went they, nowhere. All people everywhere say things that mean nothing. But in Hollywood, they say it with br- with bravura, with with. Yeah. With bravado, with, with yeah, <laughs> they enthusiastically say things that mean nothing. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> oh God! You know which I hate ever. that. I anyway, but sometimes that. sometimes they are huge fans, but you really can't tell because everybody says they're a huge fan. Everything is bigger than life yeah. in the it's language. Colossal. Because you're trying to gen up that enthusiasm that it takes. Well, to I think go- that that's true. You know, the enthusiasm, passion is the fuel. Yeah. And so what you do is you get a whole bunch of people who are passionate and hopefully they will all be passionate about the same thing, getting, you know, let's put on a show, you know, and it, it, it will last you the year that it takes to get a movie made. Yeah, it, that's it's the whole tremendous amount of enthusiasm and past all the setbacks and all the disappointments. So you really I, I get where it comes from. And we probably do some of it, too, without even realizing we're doing it after all these years. Um, no, what, again, in, in enthusiasm? Enthusiasm? No, 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 that what? big, fake-sounding, ah, hey, everybody, yeah, I'm sure, yeah, I guess amazing. we probably do a little of that. But, you know, <laughs> I think the amazing. point of that is simply that's, that's inter- the energy is part of the language. Yes. You know, that, that if you come, you know, that, that you – aren't communicating you have to you have to have it dialed up to 11 to be thought of as a six yeah 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 and and luckily we do have that we're yes, basically we big kids at heart so if we're vibing in a meeting we're we're not being fake that is actually, with the energy of world-class athletes that's there us. you go we got all the energy but in any case <laughs> you know i think by the time we got to let's say the horror noir uh short pieces we wrote that uh, for the horror noir anthology film that is still available on Shudder and AMC plus we co-wrote two of them. The Lake was an adaptation of my story, the Lake and Fugue State, an adaptation of, of our story, Fugue State that Steve took lead on by that time. While there were some changes we could not argue against because they were budget related, yeah. you know, I mean, I it's like they told us more specifically. Well, we should have guessed. I mean, yeah. now that I look back on it, come on. Yeah, they, were, we, we they, should... were, they were slippery, honey. We, no, we... I don't think they were slippery. They were wonderful. What are you talking about? That was, no, but in any in case. In terms of not really answering how much money they had. Oh, yeah. We never did hear the budget. That's true. Yeah. But in any case, um, especially in Fugue State, there was supposed to be a scene that in the short story takes place at a stadium, right? <laughs> There's no way. We were we knew that. We knew we wouldn't get a stadium and we definitely scaled it down, but it wasn't I I think they didn't think we had scaled it down enough. Like we had like two sets they thought were unnecessary. Does she really have to go to the grocery store? Let's have this conversation happen at her right. house. You know, that kind of stuff. So some of that you can't push back against. We came up against that with the Twilight Zone episode two. There were things we had to scale back down for budget, even though that had a way bigger budget. 
But there were some things, and I wish I could remember specifically, that we did push back on. And this came from having a comfortable relationship with these executives, uh, Nick Lazo over there, Crystal Holt, who was the guardian angel who really made that project happen. We had a good rapport with them. So if we're in a notes meeting, we're not there nervous, like, oh, I don't know if I should say anything. It's like, boom, if it pops in my head, I'm going to say it. You know what I mean? But that takes time. That takes time to get up to that point of confidence. And it takes rapport and trust with the executives. And like Steve said, we do bend over so far backwards to give not. And here's another key. I guess if I had to give people a key for addressing notes, especially in Hollywood, you you can't usually give executives exactly what they said they want because they don't know often exactly how to articulate it. What you have to try to do is what the note beneath the note means is they're saying one thing, but what are they, what do they actually want? What do they actually want? And you have to kind of parse that out. You have to sort of figure it out. It's like, no, they're on the surface. They're saying make her nicer. But what they really want is for her to be a more compelling character. And if you can think of ways to make her a more compelling character, like what we did with this other exec that we uh, just lost and hopefully we'll work with again, when we did our first rewrite, not only did we execute, I would say, 90% of the things he asked for, because they were smart things, but we gave him six things he had not asked for. So what we turned around was a, a vibrant and exciting new draft that exceeded his expectations. And I think that that is something you often talked about when I first started screenwriting, Steve, the the importance of surprising the executives. Yeah, can see. the idea is that your first viewer is the reader. Yes. That you have to entertain them. Yes. And if you just fix the things that they say, then it's the same draft they've seen before and the same suggestions that they made to you. And there's no surprises. There's With some lipstick there. on it. That's about it. <laughs> Yeah, put some lipstick on that pig. No, what we need is more than lipstick. We need a whole like red carpet, glitter dress, you know. We need a whole, yeah, we want a new pig is what we want. (laughs) Uh, So so what you do is that you look at your story and you find things you can change, dialogue that you can change, little bits of business you can change. You don't change the structure because the structure is a lot of what they paid for. Once you've got yeah, unless the they said it ain't working, down, then yeah, yeah, don't mess with that you, structure. You, you stick with that. The underlying structure, you know, the length of scenes, the sequence of scenes and so forth is as important as the nature of the story, the thematics, the char- the, the characters and so forth. It's one of the values of your story and, and in some ways the most difficult thing to to get right. So you don't change that, but you look for some ways to make them laugh or make them jump, mm-hmm. or make them cry, mm-hmm. that an emotion they did not feel before, so that every time they come to your script, you know, you they start knowing you as the person who makes them feel something. They felt something when you pitched it, they felt something when you turned in your first draft, they feel something every time after that. It's never business as usual with you. You're always doing the extra, you're always going the extra mile. And consider this should not be difficult for a real artist because it's that whole thing about, you know, books, story scripts don't, are never finished, they escape. Yes. So 
if you had additional time, you should be able to find some additional depths of things to do with the specific intent to create an emotional change in the person who's reading it, because that's who you have to sell to first. If it doesn't get past that reader, it'll never get the director. It'll never get to the actors. It will never get into production. It will never make it to the screen. So you, you have to, if you can entertain them, they're going to believe you're going to entertain the audience too. Yeah. You really have to do more than entertain. You have to enchant them because there, I, there's no, and I'm not trying to say that as like, I'm arguing with you. I'm actually agreeing with you, but I'm amping it up to 11 too. It's a yes. And honey, it's a yes. And um, because there's no executive that has ever probably gotten a film made or television series launched that they thought was only okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they have to love this project. It takes so much banging your head against the wall to get anything on the air. So every draft should make them fall more and more in love with the possibilities of your project. And I'm so excited that I feel like I've learned this. I, I really, you know, in recent years have felt that revision was was something that I struggled with in terms of how much to revise, how much to keep the same. When we had the between and development, and it's about alternate uh, alternate realities, and also it, it goes far beyond the parameters of the original novel when we develop it for TV, because the novel is at best maybe a season. Or not even, really. I mean, it's it's probably less than a season without a lot of padding. So we had to do a lot of thought about how to make it work. As a, as a, and, and then I think when we got the notes back for that very first revision, we did just the bare minimum. It feels like to me, in retrospect, like, yes, we addressed these notes. Some we pushed back on. We didn't probably have that many surprises, I would say, because we were still sort of working our way. By the time we got to that second revision, that one really popped. But by then we were running out of steps, right? So with this last project uh, that we were developing, uh, I really felt like our first revision was more like the second revision, that we went deeper, we did more, we had more surprises, we had more confidence, and that confidence really shines through because no matter how discouraged you may feel after getting notes, and even if there are only a couple notes, nobody likes to hear that what they turned in wasn't great and amazing. So even light notes can be nauseating, but especially if it's like heavy, heavy notes, it can really jar your confidence in who you are as a writer, who you are as a creator. But it, remember, it was you, your vision your story that got their attention. All these people who are on this last Zoom with you are gathered around your fire of creativity. And remember that, remember that, not just so you can say, no, I'm not doing any of that because that's not going to get you anywhere. But having that knowledge and confidence helps give you the clarity, to, like Neo in the Matrix, you know, you're just watching these bullets whiz and you sort of have the confidence to figure out, okay, yeah, that's a good point. Oh, that is a good point. I wish we had done more of that. And and you start, instead of it like putting your fire out, it actually makes your fire grow. And that's what I loved about this exec we were working with. Every time we talked to him, every time we got notes from him, I felt like the fire was growing. And that's what you, know, you want. Not everybody can do that. I'd like to talk about the the sequence that I go through when I get notes. 
Oh yeah, let's do it. Uh, the first thing that I do, and the notes will generally, let's say on on uh, on a, on a book, the notes will generally come in a um, in an email. Usually come in an email uh, with comments that are overall thematic comments, overall impressions, and then sometimes you know specific things on specific pages. So the first thing I'll do, it, it will come, and I might not even read it immediately because I know that's right. I, I it always feels like a punch in the gut. Always, I don't know what it says, but it's like, oh God, here it is. Is so, it longer than a sentence? Then I can't, I can't deal with it today. <laughs> so by the next day, you know, sometimes later that day, but certainly by the next day, I'll read it over and I'll read it over in a slightly dissociated state, somewhat disconnected from it. Um, and I'll just read over the whole thing. And the first thing I will do, what I'm looking for is just kind of the overall thing, put it in the back of my head, but I'm looking for the the easiest changes to make. What are the absolute easy changes? I mean, they might just be typos or word substitutions. So the first things I'm going to do is to do the low-hanging fruit, is make the changes that are like typos, word choices, the easiest stuff. And I will still feel that slightly sick to my stomach feeling, but I can get through that. And what happens is that if I just make those changes that day, that the next day when I go back and look at it, I will have a reduced reaction to the more extreme changes. I'll be able to look at the changes that I used to think were extreme and they're just kind of medium. And I look at the ones I thought were medium and they're not looking easy. And Mm -hmm. what's going on is that my unconscious mind gets everything here's everything, takes in everything. And so it's chewing over this while I'm sleeping and also while I'm doing the easy work. I'm also re-familiarizing myself with the project. I'm going, because I write a lot, a lot of what I'm writing is in flow state. I don't remember things that I write sometimes until I reread them. Sometimes until I reread them a couple of times, then I get the whole picture in my head. So by starting with the absolutely easiest things, do those, take the rest of the day off, go back the next day. What are the easiest things then? And every time I'll do the easy things, unless something jumps out at me and it's like, oh, I can see how this character could do this and this would address this note. That stuff, the the more complex and more difficult fixes start looking easier. My brain makes those connections and I just do the stuff that seems easy. And I just do the stuff that seems doable. If it's a big note and I, I'm running out of time, I might try dividing it up. But that sense of feeling sick to my stomach slightly, um, that's adrenaline. And if I had to, I could burn that adrenaline off with exercise or other things. But generally, that doing the easy thing, the the low-hanging fruit approach is the single most powerful weapon I've had, I've developed in terms of how to do, how to address notes, do the easy stuff, take some time the next day, do whatever seems easiest and keep doing that as long as you, you're staying within the time frame that, that you've got. Yeah. Um, you have to really pace it I out. Say, I wanted to say. Yeah. It's uh it's so true what you're saying, because I remember recently we got notes from a director on, on the latest draft. We were of a pilot we were working on. And the note was, it seemed long. It seemed a lot longer when I first looked at it kind of with through one eye. 
And then the next time I opened up the note, it it's it didn't seem long at all. There were very few things, but I kind of blown it up in my imagination because, like you said, that first contact with notes is, I guess, your inner child is in there going, oh, I don't know what it is, but it, it wasn't as bad. I want to tell a, a couple stories about times when notes have really worked and why they're important, right? Because I will be the first person to admit that in pretty much almost every case, the notes process has made my work better. Not always, but almost always, and some more than others. But I'll use an example sort of from uh, cinema folklore, which is Jordan Peele's original ending to Get Out. I don't know if everyone is aware, but in the original ending of Get Out, which if hopefully you've seen it by now, a black man, Chris, who's dating a white woman, goes to visit her family for the weekend. And it turns out they're running uh, basically a body snatching ring where they take black bodies and sell it to their rich white friends. And in the very famous concept called the sunken place and the sunken place uh, in that story, she uses hypnosis to basically make him more pliable and you you can't come out. You get stuck in there, you're voiceless, your body is, is roaming around doing things and you have no agency, you have no control. That's Get Out. Now, in the original ending to Get Out, Chris was going to go to prison and there was going to be a scene with Rod, his best friend, visiting him in prison while he's in Prison Orange and he can't remember the names of any of the people who were at the party bidding on the bodies. He doesn't have any information. But the one thing he was able to hold on to was himself. He's no longer in the sunken place. Now, I totally get why Jordan Peele felt like that would be a triumphant ending. Because the whole point was that once people are in the sunken place, they're lost forever. You've lost agency. But Chris was able to fight back break out. His body is in prison, but his mind is free. Woo! And hallelujah. But audiences were like, mm, this is not feeling like a win to us. And Jordan Peele listened. So instead, what do you get on the road when the flashing lights come that were supposed to be the police? Instead, it's his friend Rod to the rescue. So basically, that's the notion of taking that triumph, like that emotion that he wanted at first is that sense of triumph that he was able to break out of the sunken place, but even turn it up higher. If you think that's an 11, turn it up to 20. What does that look like? What does the, the biggest triumph look like? It looks like your friend rescues you. And I think that's one of the keys to why Get Out is so rewatchable. I'm sure I would have seen it several times with the original ending, but I've seen it endless times with the, the other ending. And I, my experiences with notes that have been the most powerful for me have also been about endings, especially in terms of my books. The Living Blood, which I won't go into because it's a long plot, but uh, I had, again, it was a situation where I thought I had captured an emotional feeling that worked for me, that was hopeful, and that hinted to, toward a future. But my editor was like, oh, no, it's just, I, I don't care about what happened in the rest of the world. All I care about is this one character. And if she's going to be okay, I want to know she's going to be okay. And I listened. I, I rewrote that ending. And, and actually, the same thing happened with my most recent novel, The Reformatory, 
my editor, Joe Monty, basically didn't give me any notes except pretty close to the time it was about to turn to turn the book in, uh, publication time, or sorry, Rosebud. He didn't give me any notes until pretty close to the time when I needed to turn it in. But he said, listen, the ending, and I don't want to give away the ending, but it's the same. It almost is literally the same situation as with The Living Blood. I thought my ending conveyed the emotions I was feeling because I felt those emotions when I was reading my ending. But for Joe, who was an outside reader, it was like sort of reaching toward that feeling, but didn't quite capture it for him. So I literally wrote a new final chapter in three days. And the only way I was able to do that was because we'd been developing it for TV for, you know, a couple of years. So it was still very fresh in my mind. It's not like I had to go back and remember a manuscript I hadn't thought about for a year. It was very fresh in my mind. I totally got what he was looking for. And I said, okay, if that's what you think readers need, it'll be fun for me too. Let's do it. And I have to agree. I think it was the right move. Oh, Rosebud, you're muted. That question of trying to get clear on what's the most important thing in your work. What, what are you trying to say? What do you want readers to feel? And so forth flows through and connects everything that you're doing. And it always does. I actually, I mean, I, I kind of feel like the executives are the first readers that to a certain degree, they represent the audience that if, if you've chosen the, the market correctly, you've chosen the right magazine or the right executives to work with, then they do represent a potential in the potential audience and their thoughts about this. They, they don't have to be smart. They don't have to be brilliant, but they have to know what they like. And so you can say, well, this is, this person is saying that this does not communicate these emotions to them. And if right. you, if you look at them as being decent audience surrogates, then it's like a test screening, you know, and you can, you can make a decision that you're not interested in giving the audience what they want. The audience should take what you give them. If you're a genius, you can get away with that. But otherwise, that's a fast track to flipping burgers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have to compromise in life. And so knowing where to compromise and where not to is critical. And having a procedure that enables you to do the rewriting um, without feeling like you're selling your soul is critical. It's really important. This is one of the important things that, that you need to do. And, and by the way, I think that this might be a, a decent time to mention the fact that uh, on the 17th of February, we're going to be doing a three-hour uh, lecture on screenwriting uh, via Zoom. Uh, and there'll be time for Q&A and other things. If you go to screenwritingwebinar.com, you'll find out all about it. Uh, this is what we do, and we love talking about this, and we love teaching what it is that we know. Partially is payback, but also partially this is how we get better. You know, masters True. are always learning, they're always doing, and they're always teaching or expressing. And so if you would like to be in that flow where we have an opportunity to communicate with you, please just go to www.screenwritingwebinar.com, and we would love to see you there. We are really interested, really all writers, even if you're already screenwriting and you just want to refresh or learn new tricks and hacks, 
But really, when I think about this course, I think about people who were like me years ago as a prose writer who was looking at Hollywood from the outside in, completely mystified about how one makes that crossing. Luckily, the advice I got in college is very true. It is adaptation, people. So if you're writing short stories, you're writing novels, yeah, that is the first step to becoming a screenwriter because that's how you attract producers to you. It's a huge advantage to have producers calling you rather than you have having to go out and try to find producers. So it's, well, it's already- also that's also the way you develop your your storytelling sense. I mean if you can't sell a short story, the chances that you're going to be able to sell a screenplay is is minuscule. Short stories are easily a hundred times easier to sell, and they're not easy, screenplay. but they're easier, easier. Yeah, it's, they're in comparison. I mean, I feel like almost anybody could sell a story. I mean, that, that if they focused, they can't necessarily write a fantastic story. They can't necessarily win an award with it, but they can get it published. You know, I've seen too many people do that just by brute effort. And there's, that's also true in Hollywood. There are plenty of people who just grind it out and did the work and you can, you can get in there. Um, but you know, to me, that's, that's the thing. You know, you want the feedback of a professional editor saying, yeah, I'll bet my mortgage on you. I'll give you some money for this. That's one of the first ways that you know that you're in the game. And the way you leapfrog that into Hollywood is simple. We literally just got an email from our manager today. Short stories are hot. <laughs> you know, what you got? Let's talk. <laughs> and and they are. Short stories are IP, intellectual property. Hollywood yep. lives on IP. In fact, from what I'm hearing, it's easier to, to sell a script if you have IP than it is if you just have the script. Right. Right. That I mean, so so you're already doing the first step, which is living your best life, trying to publish your stories, publishing your stories, but all the rest of it, uh, navigate. So our our webinar is not just about craft, although we will have craft and and advice about the writing process itself, but it's also the Hollywood life and the Hollywood hustle. What to expect? What's it like to be in a writer's room? What are the various roles in a writer's room. It's really to try to demystify, because if I can think of the one thing that prevented me from studying screenwriting even sooner than I did, it was because I was so mystified by every part of it, starting with the formatting. Like, oh, I don't know. Well, guess what? You don't have to worry about that. Programs will do your formatting. There's no reason to be mystified. You just have to learn how to think more visually, right under these different rules. So like Steve said, check out screenwritingwebinar.com. It's February 17th. You'll see, even if you can't afford full price, you'll see there's a way to get a discount right there on the website. So, That's right. So, so check that out. And um, we, we would hope to see you there. I don't know. I think we might be about ready to wrap up, darling. I, th- I think we are. I uh, think so. So just uh, do your part and I'll do mine. Okay. <laughs> Rosebud, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to make it a little sexier than. I mean, there's nothing wrong with like you said. I'm blanking out on how to close. Just one second. Let me figure it out. Rosebud. So even though it can be very frustrating to confront notes, no matter what level of writer you are, you have to learn how to sift out the good notes from the bad notes. Accept that your creations are not perfect, and be brave enough to make them even better. So with that advice, you go out and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero 
in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. Rosebud. Okay, let's get ready to Oculus. That was nice. Love you. Love you, too. So much. Hmm. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.